Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. A journey of thousands of kilometers starts with finding a book in the library of one of India's premier research institutes. Thus began Usha's quest. Usha is a consultant at PM Power Consulting. From becoming self-reliant and braving any situation that comes her way is how I'd summarize my conversation with her. Talking to what I call a scientific mind is like tapping into mini treasure troves of experience. From scientific programming to setting up performance testing labs, being responsible for what one builds and sells, and having your eyes open wide when you test and integrate a product with your customer, doing usability testing right beside you. Three plus decades of Usha stories are peppered with delightful experiences. Listen on. Good morning, Usha. A very warm welcome to you to the Software People Stories podcast. It's nice to finally have a conversation with a PM Parian after a very long time. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Chitra. Happy to be here. So Usha, as is tradition with our podcast, we ask our guest to introduce themselves. How would you like to do that for our listeners today? Okay. My name is Usha. I am from the south end of this country. I spent most of my working life in Bangalore. I moved here after my graduation and I spent most of my life here in Bangalore. So Usha, was computer science or a career in software engineering by choice or how did that happen? How did you choose to take up science or studying computer science if you did and prepare yourself for a career in, in software? Um, interestingly enough, I prepared myself uh, for a career in science, I should say. So I did my post-graduation in physics. I don't have a um, computer science educational background. So in fact, the first computer I saw was at my workplace in Raman Institute, Bangalore. So I worked in the institute for nearly 10 years. I worked there in the computer department and did various things. So that was my first exposure to computers and computing. So till that time, I had not physically seen a computer. That's very interesting. So what was your work at uh, the Raman Institute like? I would say that um, it was challenging. I remember my first day in the Institute. So I met um, the professor who was my boss. He pointed me to a book in the library. He said, go read it and then try it on the Vax um, computer out here. So they gave me a username and password. So basically, I had to go to the library, do a lot of self-learning, understand what computers are used for, understand the basics of la- logic. And that is where I started. So when I got stuck, there were people to help me. But um, yeah, a lot of uh, things that I had to do was self-effort. 
it is a research institute so people expected you to do your own research that must have been quite quite challenging so how did you actually begin to pick up the threads of programming and logic and then actually apply them to programs and i am making an assumption here that you may have had to design and even write programs for certain problems yes uh, how how did all that kind of happen so all that happened more or less in the similar manner my job involved um, writing programs for analyzing data there was a lot of uh, data uh, collected through various equipment okay so they were more in terms of um, astronomical data so we did a lot of analysis a lot of programs i wrote initially was in pascal and fortran they were to do with the algorithms and other things required to analyze the data there was a book called uh, numerical methods i still remember that uh, which was essentially a collection of algorithms in fortran and pascal in those days it used to come in those languages later i had seen that book coming in the c languages as well so we had to implement some of these algorithms and testing those was was a bigger challenge because you need to understand the science behind it the application of these algorithms into the space that we were using so we had inventive ways of actually testing some of these programs i would say that um, i learned the logic part easily enough i didn't find that a big challenge right once i started trying out things i got the hang of it so that is how it all started and uh, i would say that this experience right it helped in being self reliant in many ways so even now this uh, thing of finding solutions going looking doing the research finding solutions that is a that is something that has never left me after all these years that's nice that's nice in fact i was wondering today you have so many test harnesses at least when i started my career i know that j units came up and then yeah. it was relatively sort of easier to test a program at least you could uh, we had enough of uh, scripting languages by then mm. and uh, test harnesses that uh, you know offered you some means of uh, writing tests automating them providing uh, you could provide data sets from anywhere and so on so i was just wondering when you were speaking how you would have actually had to build everything from scratch yes we did have to build everything from scratch and uh, the testing for scientific applications were very very different so for example you know i have to test a software which i have written for fourier transform say right i do know that you cannot always predict the output right yes so you have to look at the output i i will give you an example i wrote programs for um, finding out structures of crystals so basically what happens is that the data for that is that they pass light through a crystal right and what you get on the other side is the fourier transform and you have lost the phase information so you get only the amplitude information you don't get the phase information so the whole program was ab- about reconstructing uh, the phase information and we did that uh, uh, by a method which was called maximum entropy method that was about searching the n dimensional space for a local maxima and seeing whether that fits in with what we know about that particular crystal okay that crystal could be a normal crystal or a protein 
crystal or whatever it is. Uh, the way would, we would test that is very different from the way we test software, a commercial software, for example. These are sometimes simpler and in physics, especially in types of problem statement like this, we need to give specific inputs and see whether, you know, those kind of outputs are what we are getting. And to determine what those specific inputs could be, uh, you need to understand the science behind it, right? What happens, uh, you know, when we take a Fourier transform of a known crystal, for example, right? Or a simple crystal. Or if I just try to get a Fourier transform of a certain type of wave, what is the output uh, which I am expecting? Am I getting it, right? If not, I know that my program has gone wrong somewhere. So um, actually finding out whether you have done the right thing, that sometimes is a challenge. And optimizing some of these algorithms is even more of a challenge. Wow. While it sounds simple at probably atomic levels, when you put it all together, I'm sure it must have had varying degrees of complexity. But at the same time, I found your example very fascinating and very interesting, Visha. After that, what did you do? Where did you go after Raman Institute? Okay. I mean, I spent nearly a decade or more in Raman Institute. So after that, I joined this company called I2 Technologies. They were into uh, supply chain planning area predominantly. They had products in that area. So they had something called demand planner, demand analyzer, and so on. So that later, I think the products must have got renamed and must have gone through many evolutions now. But that was one of the areas which I worked in next. And uh, what what did you do there? Um, were you in a development role or in a management role? What no, was no. your role in, like? Interestingly, that was the uh, uh, first company where I got involved in terms of functionality, um, in terms of testing, in terms of performance testing and so on. In fact, um, I set up the first performance testing lab for uh, I2. I would say that uh, my strengths were in pioneering things, doing things for the first time, doing research for that and getting things started. That so, must have been quite a challenging thing to do in a company where you know there are business objectives, uh, notably, you know, you have to sell or you have to make a profit out of something. So how, yes. how was that environment like? I would say that it was very interesting. I liked it. See, it is very different from a research organization. In a research organization, you are not so much pressured for time. Yes, there are time pressures, but not all the time. Right. Uh, but I would say that this transition was gentle because it, it was a company which sold products. I learned a lot of things, I would say not intentionally, but uh, by just being in that environment, listening to people, I learned how people sold software products, right? Even in those days, you know, IT used to sell their demand planner and demand analyzer, the pricing they would put or they would charge the customer was based on how much ROI they get out of this product, so to speak, right? That itself was a very interesting con concept for me because this was way back in the 90s. I've never heard of people doing things like that, you know, taking responsibility for what they sell in this manner. So that was an eye-opener and uh, it was really very nice. And um, the product itself used a lot of statistical methods internally 
in terms of uh, optimization at that time i was introduced uh, to a book by goldrat it was called the goal mm-hmm. it was about um, identifying bottlenecks in the process and and how you remove the bottlenecks to make sure for a um, easeful process flow so it talked about how you would reduce inventories and things like that and those principles were really applied in terms of supply chain planning actually so those concepts were very interesting for me wow this is actually the first time i'm hearing somebody reference eliahu goldrat's very classical book and the fact that you actually applied it in the course of your work it was applied in the product see we do apply it in lean right when yes. we talk about lean we also talk about um, uh, removing the bottlenecks and you know uh, make sure that your work stack is optimal so you don't want to clog Mm. the pipe so to yep. speak <laughs> yes so when you said you actually set up and conceptualized and set up a performance lab yeah and uh, those days there was no virtualization to speak of and you actually had to have multiple physical machines or maybe configure enough resources onto machine for you to actually characterize the performance of a product what was that like i would say that again i mean it was a new thing so to that extent it was very interesting i would say so <laughs> we used of course uh, load runner as a tool was there it was the initial versions of that tool which was mm-hmm. there we had not yet invested in it so to speak but we did have a um, evaluation version of it initially and we used all the monitors available on the windows systems so we learned how to use performance monitors on windows to get some of the parameters that we need for instance right without actually investing in that tool because this was a product and for the first time we were thinking of testing the performance of that product right computer power has grown exponentially since then and at that time we had limited resources both in terms of um, memory and other things which uh, was accessible to us for doing these kind of experiments yes i'm sure it was a must have been a really constrained environment and all the while you're watching for you know how much you consuming how much can i do with what i have yes versus i think that's a that's a problem that not many people are even aware of today today if i just want um, i'll spin up i'll make a request for you know an instance of uh, what i want and mm. i'll just launch my whole uh, environment on it uh, write my code and then just uh, push it through another set of pipelines it'll you know get uh, pushed into deployment and i can uh, you know at the drop of a hat spin up as many test environments as i want and and it's so simple now it seems yeah it is considerably simpler um i remember a time we used to write code where we need to use the existing memory very carefully so we had to swap out some things um mm. put some other parts of the code into the memory for that period period of time right some things which we take for granted now um the oper- operating systems actually do that for you now but in older days uh, some of these things you had to take care of yourself in your programming right then we moved on to parallel computing with transputers and things like that and uh, they had their own language and then 
you were working with things like that but now you have processors with so many cores and what not which does similar things yeah we have come a long way since then yes yes <laughs> no in fact i wonder uh, very often uh, you are probably you know one of few people today who has actually worked on a lot of things from scratch because when i meet a lot of students who are either fresh graduates or coming into the workplace these things are just so so unknown to them if um, you know if you were to say that i need you to design this program and here are the constraints given you know saying that you have limited memory now you, you we'll probably have to define constraints for to make people aware of what those kind of challenges are yeah but on the other hand uh, uh, the challenges uh, kids face today are very different from what we faced in those days that's true i mean that at least for one the sheer uh, sources from where you're getting data the types of data that are coming in i think are providing enough challenges to people on the ground today absolutely absolutely so the challenges are different <laughs> yeah so um after uh, you know what what else did you do in i2 usha um, i2 was, was predominantly for- this mm-hmm. the supply chain planning testing Mm-hmm. related to that and so on so i learned things beyond testing there so that was the that was my first exposure to the industry different set of people different ways of working right very different from the environment at a research institute mm-hmm. um one of the learnings was to ask the person sitting next to you if you had any challenges you know whether they have a solution of or not rather than doing trying to do everything from the scratch yourself that was a little shift because there was this tendency to go explore find out do by yourself <laughs> yeah and i'm sure the timelines must have been far more stringent because you you have a commitment to deliver yes you have a commitment to deliver i mean strangely enough i was not very much uh-huh, intimidated by that it was doable and mm. um, i did it so i didn't see many challenges there in mm-hmm. terms of the time i had to deliver i mean if i had uh, moved to a services sector it may have been a little bit more stressful mm-hmm. possibly because uh, you had a customer breathing down your neck and things like that this was all internal uh, the planning was reasonable and mm-hmm. uh, i don't think we had too many uh, challenges in terms of less time or that sort of thing occasionally it happened but it was not like every day work life balance was good So <laughs> that's nice. And thereafter after I2 what what did you do Usha? So after I2 I worked for a while in Siemens in Australia so we had moved to Australia at that time and uh, I worked for um, Siemens uh, for those 3 years and uh, in the telecom domain. So this was again in the quality and testing area so plus system integration. So those were the kind of work i did in siemens yeah the um, uh, testing part of it was in the telecom domain the system integration part of it was in the portfolio management area i see so at any point in time what are the kind of roles that you transition to um, were you always in the role of a of a developer or what are the different kind of roles that you've played in various organizations that you worked with okay so i started with system admin right i have no, done a lot of system administration for both unix and windows then 
I did development, you know, real-time programming, programming with microprocessors, scientific programming, that sort of thing, system integration kind of work, and a lot of things in the testing area, predominantly in the testing area later on. With your extensive background in testing and, uh, you know, today with the whole agile methodology of working, uh, everyone says that everyone should know everything. I mean, if you are a developer, then you're also responsible for testing your own code. What are your thoughts on that? And looking at, you know, a specialized testing role and function, Mm, how is that evolved? And, you know, what does it look like today? Okay, to answer this question, I think in early times when I started my career in testing, there was a lot of emphasis in independent verification and validation, as we used to call it. It is like, um, uh, you know, you tell, it's not that developers should not test their code, but the idea was that the completed code there needs to be an independent way of validating it to ensure that it meets the uh, business requirements. So that was the kind of thing people believed, right? We all believed that, saying that that is where testers can provide value, right? And a lot of things evolved around that in terms of independent verification and validation. Then there was this um, in uh, domain angle where you expected the people to understand the domain so that they can do IV and V better, right? So we went through those modes of working. And then now we have come back to the thing that from an agile perspective, that quality is everybody's responsibility. It is not just like a gate anymore, where you say that you give a go, no go decision. So the responsibility of actually delivering the software lies with the team nowadays. And that is the expectation that there is collective responsibility towards the project goals, project or product goals, if you will. That is a shift I have seen. Um, and um, we are continuously continuously evolving. This shift is good because when it becomes a collective responsibility, you know that you need to work together and deliver this. Yes. I also recall that this used to be a very siloed mode of operation and very often there would be tensions between test and development teams Um, and typically when it came to product release and or if you did the let's say a root cause analysis session afterwards you'd often find teams trading blame you know saying that oh we didn't receive the code on time oh we found it really buggy and then came in the concepts of shift left and how can you find things early on. So in some sense, I think a lot of it was lending itself to a collective team responsibility and uh, working a lot more closer and together. Mm. Right? Yeah. Interestingly, what we call shift left has been there from the 80s. Yes. So, you, <laughs> so uh, I would say that the way... Um, the whole software development life cycle was organized. It didn't lend itself well to implement these practices, right? We always did an RCA, right? Even in the uh, 80s and 90s, people did root cause analysis. And yeah. they would say that, okay, this defect was introduced in this case, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right? But yeah. it all depend, uh, depends on how strong the uh, concept of quality was within that organization. Mm-hmm. Whether they embrace that culture. See, a lot of people, yeah. a lot of organizations, uh, 
get certified on CMM and ISO and so on, mm-hmm. right? But um, the actual practice is a little different from what is mandated by these frameworks sometimes. Yes, yes. And there are many reasons for that. You can't really, uh, you know, blame the people, right? There are a lot of pressures which teams undergo. Yes. However, I think the in an ideal world, right, quality should be everybody's responsibility. It should be a collective goal. But getting people aligned to that goal, I think that is where the difficulty is even today. Right? <laughs> yes, uh, having a shared common vision, uh, it's much easier said than done. Yes. Yeah. So as a, in your role as a consultant or a coach, uh, what have you used as some of the techniques to get teams to sort of see the same big picture and see the same end goal? This is again an interesting question, partly because when we do uh, talk with your customers and you talk to a particular team, say a particular scrum team, you speak to them, even though they are part of a larger program or a larger scrum team, they are sometimes so focused on what they can do and what they cannot do. A lot of times we have actually seen that the understanding of definition of done is different when you take um, at a program level and at a team level. So it is very different. So making people aware of what is expected and where they are tying into what is beyond what they are doing, how what they are doing ties up with the bigger picture, I have found that that helps. So uh, with the current scenario in the entire CICD space and especially with containerization and microservices, there's a plethora of tools, frameworks going all around. And uh, people sometimes either over-engineer or they have, they get so overwhelmed by it that they struggle to actually put something together. What would be, what have been some of your observations and perhaps what would be some solutions that you could you know, provide? I am not an expert in the CICD tools and tool integration, Chitra. See, I have looked at this thing predominantly from the testing perspective, mm-hmm. right? And what we have done is quite a lot of testing frameworks and automation frameworks. Mm-hmm. And we have looked at the ways of integrating these frameworks in the uh, CI/CD mode, right? How to make sure that, for example, test cases are kicked off, not just kicked off automatically, that they can, uh, for example, run in a batch mode without um, false failures. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of uh, things that we have predominantly looked at. I have really not looked at the entire life cycle of CI/CD tools. Yes, there are many out there, uh, but you have to uh, pick up something which suits your organization and your customer. Quite often, a lot of these things are mandated by the customer and then you would use it. You may not really have a choice in what you use them. I would say that as long as um, your setup gives you the ROI that you desire or you are going towards it you are going towards getting that ROI that you are expecting, then I would say that that the solution is right for you. Okay. So you've mentioned ROI several times in this conversation, right from your experience at I2. And uh, it seems to be very much part of you. And today we do, you know, as 
coaches or trainers or whatever we do it's a good practice to steer people towards being mindful about what they are measuring mm. okay so that you know where you're headed whether you're headed in the right direction or not yes. so what in your experience have been good measures of roi and what is it that you would teach people in terms of how to first define those and what they should be so when we look at uh, testing and testing automation right uh, test automation we uh, define return on investment by uh, for example capital expenditure we have on the tool plus uh, the costs due to the effort we put in mm-hmm. to develop those tests right mm-hmm. and we estimate the returns by looking at how much time for example we have saved with each run okay right are we able to do more by investing less right investment in terms of um, people time etc so if this works to our advantage for example in we would see reduced cycle times from an execution perspective that's one of the typical things we look at so whatever you used to take over 3 days you may do it overnight and it is done for you to come and uh, look review the results and what right mm-hmm. so if that happens we would say that we have got a good roi right if we talk about roi in terms of development itself agile itself incorporates it in terms of business value right we tag uh, stories yes business value yes. and then that is how you measure you know how much business value have i delivered mm-hmm. versus what i was doing before i would say that depending on the situation the roi should be defined it's mm-hmm. not universal in every situation but it is yes. context dependent and uh, you do make a definition based on that yeah based yep. on what is important to you your customer your employer at that point in time so usha in your experience uh, have you actively interacted with end users how have those interactions been what have your learnings from there been and how have you kind of brought that back into the work environment i can say in a couple of scenarios i have really worked with the end users right uh, so i was talking to you about um, doing system integration mm-hmm. right where um, we were developing code and the customer was sitting in the same room as us right we were actually doing it there and it was uh, in the financial sector this was not portfolio management but something similar to that this was about home loan processes and things like that and we were developing software i was actually developing software using off the shelf product right and the customer was there in the same room as us and they were doing user acceptance testing right? okay we would develop drop the code integrate and drop the code every day and they used to test it every day this was pre agile days <laughs> had a first hand view of how they look at that process how they look at the business processes and how they use it it is even though i came from a testing background there were certain things obviously that you learned that however much you say that you have achieved the desired coverage it still may not be the way the end customer is looking at it so they do i mean they do find bugs and then we would fix them on the fly 
so that was a really good experience and it actually honed my uh, testing abilities even further right to look what are the things i should really look at <laughs> what would the customer view this as because they are experts in the business process right while we see the documented part of the business process we do not know so much about the unstated requirements all the time because you even though you may understand the domain it may still be something new to you you are not at that level of expertise to uh, talk about at the completeness in terms of the um, features and functionality you actually should have developed what did the customer really want i was just thinking that what we use some tools today uh, we call it ethnographic research Mm. but it's basically looking at a day in the life of that user isn't mm. it absolutely and then that really helps see we look i mean you learn as you go on for sure because if you make a mistake right it will sure enough it will turn up in the next stage right and you will spend time and money in fixing mm. those problems you learn from that too that feedback loop also happens you do that too but nowadays i think with agile we are trying to preempt it by being constantly in touch with the customer asking them is this what you really want the way for example a user story is articulated it is about a slice of uh, yes time in the day of that user what they yes. do, what yes. they are likely to do so that mm-hmm. really helps in terms of uh, articulation in terms of shared understanding mm-hmm. as to what is it that we are looking at i really find the idea of acceptance criteria very good because um, you know by documenting it like that it is very clear to everybody how this has to be developed how this will be tested you know the rigor of testing also will come through in those requirements themselves and that certainly helps definitely so better the articulation better the defect prevention so to speak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's a continuous refinement process right with every yes. iteration you you just get better with articulating very solid acceptance criteria and uh, i love the fact you said shared understanding and in my experience once the shared understanding grows it also organically gets that much better of course provided that the team is is kind of tuned into each other as well as the uh, fact that we're all working towards a common purpose I agree with you there in fact I was about to uh, talk about um, you know the team dynamics themselves right how critical it is for the success or failure of whatever they do as a team oh yes right yeah. so it is important to um, build the right team you know especially <laughs> in scrum teams you know there are six seven people who are working together day in and day out they better yeah. get along with each other <laughs> <laughs> we have had a uh... very interesting conversation for the last 45 minutes and uh, uh usually before we close the podcast uh, we invite our guest to share what is really worked for them as if you were to give advice to people considering a career in software technology or engineering what would be some of your words of wisdom to aspirants it is important to follow your heart and follow your passion if technology and software is not your passion please do not go for it okay and if it is your passion go for it and uh, you know give your 200% to it whatever that area might be within 
technology and software there are so many areas right you do not know whether you would like something or not like something but you make sure that you are following your passion if your heart is not in it it is very difficult to to do well in that area unless you are a very exceptional person to start liking something you didn't simple enough sir sure. <laughs> but very no, hard feel... for people to find and uh... practice no i find uh, this um, especially important and important nowadays because there are a lot of people that you see who really do not have an interest they get in for various reasons and then they struggle and then they drop out yes. i think sometimes it's such a sad thing to see there uh, are so many things i mean i would say that the world has opened up there are so many opportunities nowadays mm-hmm. about so many things so one should not get stuck up It's okay if you make a mistake, you should realize it quickly and move on. So yes, yes, and perhaps <laughs> treat every experience like an experiment. Okay, maybe I don't know too much about this, but hey, let me go and give it a try. If it works, yeah. fine. If I find out that I like it, I'll go with it. Otherwise, I'll move on to something else. You learn from every experience, even though you think you don't. I, I this has been a big learning for me. There are. times in my life where i felt i have learned nothing over these last few years but then when you <laughs> sit back and contemplate that is not true right everything we, you went through has enriched your life in some way or the other in Absolutely. terms of knowledge in terms of things that you learned right the way you think differently now from what you used to think Certainly. how you have fine tuned your ability so even i share this with anybody who asked me the question i said every day there is actually something to learn yes so usha thank you so much this has been uh, an enriching conversation at many levels i know we explored probably touched tips of the surfaces of many topics uh, but that's usually what uh, a conversation like this would be like maybe there's potential for a lot more podcasts and we could always talk about that later but thank you so much for your time uh this was a really nice conversation thank you chitra it was uh, interesting for me as well and um, it was a new experience right i had not thought about some of these things for a long time uh, you made me think okay <laughs> that was thanks, nice thanks usha thank you thank, thank you We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcast@pm-powerconsulting.com.